parenting and parents on 702. So we're talking about private higher education. There's been quite a bit of research into it at the moment. I'm going to bring in my guest, Dr. Andrew Hebling. He's CEO of Edge Education. He's a medical doctor with over 20 years of experience in the education industry. Edge Education is shining the light on private higher education 25 years into democracy. And this is what they say. They're going to uncover the hidden truths behind South Africa's private higher education landscape with a thought-provoking video on private higher education in South Africa. Very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. Why this focus? We have really launched a video campaign to highlight the private higher education chapter in a review that was done by the Council on Higher Education. It was a review into higher education in South Africa 25 years after democracy. And in that study, they divided it into eight themes. And one of those themes was the chapter on private higher education. And what it's really looking at is the issue of capacity in terms of our national development plan goals to reach 1.6 million or to get 1.6 million higher education enrollments. So we're a little over a million at the moment. And the problem is really that the public institutions, the public system is at full capacity and we're really looking at the opportunity, I suppose, for private higher education institutions to step into that space and to increase that capacity. And how do they step into that space successfully? Well, I think it's been a transition. So if you look back at the history of private higher education in South Africa, sort of early 90s, very little regulation. There was uh, very... um, many, I would say, uh, unscrupulous providers offering higher education. That was largely because it was unregulated. But then in the early 2000s, that all changed. And to the point where we are at the moment, where all private higher education institutions are uh, quality assured by the Council on Higher Education and quality assured in the exact same way that the public institutions are. So I think it's a, a, a sort of transition that we're looking for in its ability to have a single coordinated system. So the ability to be able to bring the private higher education institutions into the fold of the Council on Higher Education and really looking at how the two systems can complement each other. There's a bit of a narrative out there that the two systems are competitive, but that's really not the case at all. And as I say, they they really are offering the same level of qualification from an accreditation perspective. Why do you say they're not competitive? I mean, not competitive in what area? From a student um, enrollment perspective, so there's this narrative that any students going to the private higher education institutions are those students that would otherwise go to public institutions. But it's it's not the case, as I say, because the public institutions are operating at full capacity. And also there's a difference in terms of the types of qualifications. So a lot of the public institutions have undergraduate degrees and then with a stratification of the matric in terms of getting three levels of passes. So you get a high certificate pass, a diploma pass, and then a degree pass. And a lot of the private institutions are operating with these high certificates and with these diplomas. And they really are fulfilling a niche in that regard. And they really do add a significant amount of value because not only do they still articulate 
into a degree should a student wish to continue their studies, but they have that one year exit point. And there's quite a big focus on the work integrated learning component of it. So students are coming out with that skill. And it's also quite interesting because the graduation rates and that's a complex complex sort of science and a complex mm-hmm. equation, but graduation rates for those one-year programs are high relative to the degrees. And obviously there's multiple reasons for that, um, socioeconomic, academic, epistemological reasons for that, but they really do offer that opportunity. Mm. Tell us more about the historic and current neglect of this sector. Okay, so... I think the opportunity for that single coordinated system is really about having a level playing field. And the playing field is not level on a couple of areas. One of them is with respect to information and having a coordinated management information system that incorporates the private sector. Mm-hmm. And those that data is there with Stats SA, absolutely, and it's there with the Council on Higher Education, it's there with the Department of Higher Education and Training, particularly with respect to the public, but not so with the privates. And in fact, the data between the CHE and, and DHIT is in a lot of instances um, very different. One of the examples is the difference in enrollment rates between what the CHE says and DHIT says in terms of, I think it's 7% for DHIT and 15% for the CHE. So that's one of the areas that we need to address, I think, in having this coordinated system. Another area which is... A challenge, I think, is with respect to student support, and there's big debate around that in that private institutions very much offer a high level of academic support, but the other areas of support for students like psychosocial support, like cultural support, like sporting support, that is definitely more available in the public space. So really trying to get the privates involved in that. And it goes deep in terms of a campus experience and that sort of psychosocial growth. And then sorry, I think one so, of the other... Sorry, um, obviously it depends on that school, right? I should imagine there are many different ways of operating within that ambit. Very much so. And it's changing a lot. I mean, it's quite... It's quite interesting now because kids will sort of say, you know, what are you doing next year? You'll ask them and they'll say, no, no, I'm going to Stellenbosch for argument's sake. And what that will mean actually is maybe they're studying at a private institution in Stellenbosch, but they're going to Stellenbosch. And it also might mean that they are at a private residence, but they're also going to Stellenbosch. So there's sort of a, it's changing that sort of um perception of private institutions. And one of the areas where they really shine is in these um, sort of niche areas or niche sessions, which is really a, a sort of classification of the of the program type, like it's humanities or it's commerce. And one of the areas where private definitely shines is in design, for argument's sake. It's a mm. big area, traditionally very, very strong. And a lot of students will, in fact, choose private over public in that particular session. Mm. So it's changing and growing. I mean, it must, must be quite fascinating because it obviously says a lot about the state of South Africa, the state of our society, integration and dealing with all the, the social norms and uh, influences. Definitely. Yeah, it's, it's um, look, I think 
it really needs to be said that obviously higher education post-94 needed massive transformation and transformation on all three levels. And I think accolades to the CAG and the department for doing that because a lot of that transformation has really been achieved in terms of our mix, our population mix in higher education institutions and in terms of our graduates. But there's a lot of work to be done still. And I think one of those kind of uh, barometers, if you will, is the uh, participation rate, which is really the number of students in a particular age group in the population that is going to higher education. And believe it or not, that's around 20%. Mm-hmm. And then if you look at the graduation rates, that's then another 20%. So effectively, 20% of the 20% are actually exiting with a higher education qualification. So you know, that's 4% of the population. So that's really, I think, the next step that needs to be made. We need to be working on those population rates. And that's the capacity, achieving those 1.6%. really is, you know, there's a lot of data around GDP per capita for a particular country. The more graduates you have, the more individuals you're going to have to start businesses, the more jobs that are going to be created, and ultimately the more prosperous a society is going to be. Absolutely. All right, we're going to be talking about this more. If anyone wants to ask Dr. Andrew Hebling a question or two, make sure you get in touch with us. The number 011-8830702. I'll put your call through to him. Or you can also WhatsApp the question on 072-702-1702. Follow 702 on Twitter. At Radio 702. We're talking about private higher education and some extensive research into it and where it has come in the last 25 years. And I'm just going to read you a message, Andrew, from Justine, who says, I'd like to share the latest video of what's going on at Tux University Hatfield campus. Students are being forced to study online and not return to campuses once again. Their volatility and their safety cannot be guaranteed. What kind of institution is this? Nothing is ever documented on the media and parents just have to pay regardless. I mean, the message goes on a little bit longer. But talk to us about what you are finding when it comes to this sort of situation in private higher education and others. Yeah, I mean, it's a a big challenge in uh, South Africa and I think we need to delineate those challenges on the basis of academic challenges and then psychosocial challenges. And obviously what the listener's referring to here at Hatfield is a sort of systemic problem related to the country, Mm. I suppose, and not necessarily related to the institution. I think in the context of higher education provision for public institutions in South Africa, it's the same as privates, actually. There's a lot of institutions that are really doing fantastic work and rank very, very highly internationally, both from a sort of research perspective, from an undergraduate perspective, from a postgraduate perspective. There's definitely these pockets of excellence. On the, you know, on the other hand, there's pockets of very, very poor service delivery, both on the academic front and from the psychosocial front. And it's interesting because in the chapter, actually, the authors, which are Divya Singh and Mike Toms, they hypothesized that one of the reasons driving the growth in private higher education, which incidentally is at around about 10% per year, is that students are looking for an environment where they are free to study and 
you know, there's um, safety is one of their concerns um, and the ability to sort of not have disruption to the academic year, disruption to the teaching and learning. So in that breath too, the same for publics, private institutions have also pockets of excellence. And in terms of the, the, the sort of big um, brands out there being listed companies, some of them and others, you know, really offering amazing teaching and learning and really very, very invested in delivering that teaching and learning. There's obviously also institutions that are not meeting muster in the same regard. But it's quite interesting in the in the system and trying to get this coordinated system because any organization is a product of the people inside that organization. And the academics travel from private to public and back again. So there's already this kind of um, coordination, I suppose, in terms of the people that are operating in the organization. And then just to add one other bit, it's quite interesting because one of the barriers, I think, is this use of the word university. So you cannot refer to a private university in South Africa. That term is reserved for the public institutions. Although in the 2016 amendment to the Act, they've actually put there that you can have different stratifications of private institutions with the private university being at the apex of that. So, yeah, to answer the well, to comment on the listeners' uh, comment there, I think, you know, there are definitely challenges academically and otherwise, and there are definitely pockets of excellence, both in publics and privates. And there's definitely very, very committed people in both the public and private sectors. And a better working environment. I mean, obviously, that's crucial to attracting the sort of talent that you want at these higher education facilities. How evenly balanced is that? It's definitely becoming more balanced. And as I say, there's a, a kind of migration, if you will. I think the limitation in some of the privates, for argument's sake, um, if we take research, for example, obviously, you know, an academic's, one of an academic's primary goals or objectives is to do research and the private institutions are less focused in that mandate of a higher education institution. They're more focused on teaching, which in a way, in certain situations, is that that teaching and learning is very innovative, you know, first class, 21st century teaching and learning. So the privates definitely are growing an attractiveness perspective for academics in the, the public sector. But as I say, that sort of research barrier is definitely a barrier. And then the postgraduate studies is also a, ba a barrier, although that's definitely on the increase, the more sort of PhDs that are being available, made available inside the private space. Mm. So uh, this research that uh, you're talking about now in the video that you've released or will be releasing to as, as many uh, people and institutions as possible. What What is it that you hope to achieve? The catchphrase there is shine a light. And we're trying to 
create a narrative between all the role players. And those role players, as I say, are professors and academics and teachers uh, in private and public uh, institutions. They are also people in government, in the Council on Higher Education, the department, uh, et cetera, and really create, to shine a light on the possibility for this single coordinated system. In the report, in the chapter on private higher education, one of the conclusions was that there was an unequivocal neglect of private higher education in terms of considering its potential to increase the number of enrollments and ultimately increase the number of graduates. So we're trying to start that dialogue around the potential of higher education and also to have a look at the the sort of evolution of it because it's really changing. And I think COVID to a large extent was an absolute catalyst in terms of accelerating private institutions and accelerating the teaching and learning. There was this notion of emergency remote teaching, which both publics and privates did. They both did it, you know, had to do it as a matter of necessity, but private institutions definitely managed to uh, up their game from that perspective. So it's really to create this dialogue and we're going to continue it with a uh, um, with more panel discussions and trying to bring people in, as I say, from the different sectors and to really start to have a narrative as to how private higher education can be the solution to increasing our enrollments and our graduations. And I know this is a broad sweep question, but are they open to it? And if we get it right, what do you think that means for us? And you touched on it briefly about South Africa. What do you think it means for country and South Africa as a whole? Yeah, I mean, at Edge Education, our whole mandate is around, uh, or our whole vision is around student success. And that is really about empowering people to take up their positions in society from an economic and from a social perspective and to really grow South Africa. That's what we need. We need people to to grow in both the public and the private sectors to be able to, as I said, start businesses and employ people and really bring South Africa into the global community. I mean, South African higher education is, in fact, you know, it has a it has a it has good standing still, mm. and we can take that to another level. We believe. All right. If anybody listening today wants to find out more about the work that you've done, how do they go about that? The video series is on YouTube, so they can go to YouTube and go to Edge Education and they can see the episodes there. There's 10 episodes in total, and I think we've released eight, so the ninth one is on the way. And then just keep watching that YouTube channel, keep watching our socials, watch LinkedIn, uh, watch our website as well. And as I say, we're, we're building this narrative and there's definitely more panel discussions to come. And I think everybody being united around that goal of increasing capacity and increasing graduates. Mm. Well, what a fascinating topic. And thank you for sharing the research that you've done. We'll look out for your video, Dr. Andrew Hebling, CEO of Edge Education.